0: You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about, actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book called Auction Ready, How to Buy Property at Auction Even Though You're Scared Shitless.
1: And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property.
0: Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website, Website as well as download our free, full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? The elephantintheroom.com.au.
1: Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp and we have a cracking Dumb of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking.
0: Well, tomorrow is April Fool's Day and do you know what we do on April Fool's Day?
1: We launch our annual Fool All Forecaster Report. I've been looking at all the projections for the 2019 property market and we all know it was a very surprising year. So who got it right? Who should we have listened to? Should we have listened to any of them at all? And I've dug
0: back a bit further in time to test some hotspot predictions from a decade ago. One year can prove to be a volatile time, as we've just seen, and in individual suburbs, the percentage growth or loss can be skewed depending on the volume of sales and type of sales. But over a 10-year period, the data tells a very different story, one which I'd argue is much more reliable. After all, the proof is in the pudding. Now download your free 2020 full or forecaster report from tomorrow on our website which is the elephantintheroom.com.au and until tomorrow you can still download the
1: 2019
0: report but let's get stuck into talking about what we discovered this year.
1: So I think it's um important to start on the, the you know what the, what the reality was at you know start of 2019 I mean the Sydney and Melbourne markets have been falling quite significantly you know, I think it was probably circa around 10%. Um, you know, the federal election was on overdrive. Negative gearing was potentially going to go in May. Um, the Royal Commission hadn't been finished. The, the, the actual uh, interviews and the process had been done, but the report hadn't been released. Um, Westpac were likely to be in court. Um, I think they were going in in February as well, um, and a you know, a fight with ASIC around responsible lending. So there was lots of, I guess, fear in the market, um, and you know that was leading to a lot of big predictions. But um, I think, as we all know, um, May came around. The surprise election result, um, you know, with liberals winning, was that's that's changed the game. Then the RBA came out with some, you know, you know bazookas, basically three big rate cuts in a few months. Um, and you had APRA was on board as well and they cut servicing um, how much, you know, you need to service on your mortgage. So that meant people could borrow a lot more. Um, and then basically demand came straight back um, and there wasn't much supply. And so, you know, Sydney, Melbourne really started kicking off. I mean, what would you say, Veronica? Is it, you know, wow. early February, March?
0: What, last year? Well, yeah. actually last year I did write a report. I did some research in the middle of the year in June Mm. I, it's still kicking myself that I—I I don't know—I was mucking around in the final edit of that report, and um, and between the time when I actually wrote it, did the research, made the discovery, and then released it, CoreLogic came out with figures showing that the there'd been a month of growth, mm. and so what my research showed was that really the the bottom of the market was December two thousand eighteen, um, and I will include the link to that. Uh, article that I wrote in the show notes here, so you can read that and what that research was based on. But we, so we definitely felt things changing um, in yeah. the early part of the year, but we didn't physically see any real evidence of price changes really until after, um, you know, probably August, August September is when we felt it on the ground.
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. So as prices fall, this is what's happening with stock markets at the moment. There's um, there's buyers willing to kind of enter because they they think it's a good time to buy, right? And so um, the thing that was playing out here in the market: less people were selling, so listing volumes were going down and down because people say, "I'm not selling for this price," um, and I don't really have the confidence of upgrading in the market because I can't find anything I want. So listing numbers were falling, but demand was still there, you know. And so what you were doing is you were starting, even though there's all this negativity in the market, we're starting to find price floors. Um, in quality assets. And so quality assets just weren't falling anymore. Potentially they'll even rising even in these kind of midst of negativity. Yeah. Um, and then as soon as all that went, which is kind of what's happening with Corona as well at the moment, oh. you know, with lots of negativity in the market, there's still going to be people willing to, to take on risk and, and buy. Um, but as soon as the confidence comes back and then it it rebounds fast and, um, you know, stock markets rebound really fast when the news really does change. Um, and so, you know, that's what happens, you know, the, the growth between say May and Christmas was, you know, we're arguing that, we're, you know, it's in March again now um, that we're saying it's already back to its peak. So it's already risen back that 15% at lost. which when you um, look at the growth rate, that's more like a 20% rise off a smaller base. Well, yeah, um,
0: it took two years for the median Sydney house price to go down 15%. Now, I, I understand we're just talking about Sydney here and that different different cities and and regional areas perform yeah. differently, but even Melbourne had somewhat similar. So say, let's just look at Sydney. So we know that two years it took from go from top to bottom and then in, mm. in roughly nine months it took to rebound 12%. So you almost recouped all of those losses. Um,
1: and probably not on all properties. I think this is the important thing to remember is that um, a lot of the poor properties haven't recovered anywhere near that, the strength of the quality assets, the things that suit families on good streets. They've bounced back um, extremely well, but a lot of the apartments haven't, you know. And you know um, why?
0: Because the the proportion of investors in the market at the peak was ridiculously over-proportioned over yep. and the recovery has been driven by owner-occupiers, not by investors.
1: Yeah, one hundred percent, and you've got more supply hitting over the last few years because they were building on overtime through that boom, um, and a lot of it hasn't been finished. There's still one hundred thousand apartments, you know, still getting built right now. Um, just you know, I just found on. out that a lot of work sites are actually, you know, with the corona actually um, shutting down as well. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: and as, as, you know, I know someone in construction, he said, well, you can't, I can't send my workforce home to work because you can't build a build a building from home. <laughs> and I thought, oh, yeah, geez, that's pretty, That's yeah, that's a bit confront, confronting. So, yeah,
1: so I if we go through some of what the experts, um, and we do put a bit of a inverted commas around it because, you know, I do think um, anyone who's forecasting um, where a market's going to go um In property, um, it's it's really a risky um, sort of prediction because you know the reality is no one ever buys the Australian property market, Um, and it's actually a pointless number. But we just kind of like to make a bit of fun about it because um, we always you know we always buy individual properties, and you know even though the market does certain things, that doesn't mean that happens to your properties. And uh, you know I'd argue a lot of a lot of properties that are quality assets are even higher than they were in 2017. I don't know if you've seen that on the ground. Mm. Mm.
0: Yes, absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt. But you know what's sort of interesting as well, we, we discovered this last year, and we actually did last year's full Law forecaster report, was that um, really and truly, it's about media opportunities, isn't it? So if you are prepared to stick your neck out in the chopping block, you know, you get calls from journalists asking you for these, these predictions, um, then people who are in this line of business need to give them an answer and it, you know, it's chicken and egg. We're asking for the predictions as in we, as in the reading public or the headline reading public at the very least. Um, and therefore these experts and economists and so forth feel that they have to come back with a prediction and they keep doing it. And so all I can think is that you must've had a field day with those who got it wrong, Chris.
1: (laughs) We did. So, um, you know, obviously there was some big, big, big names and big predictions. Um, you know, the start of last year, I think that a few, you know, Shane Oliver's the most quoted guy in Australian property media by far. Um, every day, um, he's quoted somewhere. Um, he was thinking 25% falls. So, you know, the biggest name in town was expecting 25% falls. He didn't go anywhere near that. And, um, you know, and you can think about where things are. If you, if you were taking Shane's Oliver advice because he's number one out there to to buy property, well, you wouldn't have bought property at all because you thought it was going to keep falling and the markets bounce back dramatically. So, you know, you've yeah. got to be careful um, when you listen. I mean, Martin North and, um, you, know, he, he, you know, I've been on Martin's show quite a lot of times and, you know, really like him as a person and things like that. But a lot of his predictions are built on kind of big, um, they're built on surveys, which is kind of your, um, you know, one part of it, but also in terms of models and things like that. And, you know, his numbers were showing, you know, 20 to 40% falls. Um, you know, the big names, Steve Keen, we've all heard of him. Um, he's been saying 40% falls since 2006, I think. He just keeps saying 40%. Uh, he was back in May saying 40% again. Um, you had Harry Dent from the U- US who pops over here. He came over here again and was saying 40% to 6% falls. Um John Hempton, I used to work with him at Platinum Asset Management, um, you know, back in 2006. He's a hedge fund sort of um, investor, so he invests in a lot of shorts, so he likes making money off falls. Um, he reckoned 85% falls to the property market. Um, <laughs> you know, even like, you know, QBE, for example, they um, they said there was going to be a bit of a recovery at some point, but they didn't think that it would hit anywhere near Current pro- uh, 2017 prices till June 2022. So um, they weren't expecting anywhere near the recovery um, that there's been. Um, you know, most people expected huge falls last January, which, if you kind of stayed out of the market because you're expecting these big falls, that's the big risk here. You've just completely missed it. By the time you got yourself ready, the market's recovered, you know, most of its losses. Mm. Do you
0: know, there, it's. There's that core logic graph that I keep referring to, which is, is the um, it shows, a graph that shows the time to decu- to recover nominal value from downturn. Mm. And, um, you know, the, the, the downturn we just had, 2017-19, and it's hard to tell with the exact colours on this graph, but I'm looking at it that there's only really one period of time over the last 30 years where the downturn took longer. It wasn't quite as steep but is only one, so and it's equal with the 1989-91 downturn. All the rest have been shorter. So, you know, I, I guess it's, you know, predicting is really difficult because even in history, they, every downturn hasn't followed exactly the same pattern. So I think too that um, what is really interesting is that You know, there are these big events that change things, you know, so it's like everyone's making these forecasts, assuming everything's going to continue as we think it's going to continue. So everyone thought Labor were going to get in. You know, now we've got coronavirus and thinking, well, that's going to throw out a a bunch of um, forecasts as well. But uh, what I love is uh, we interviewed Louis Christopher episode 102, and it's Mm -hmm. definitely well worth going back to and listening to in the context of this particular episode. Now, Louis owned up to his own misfired predictions instead of trying to cover them up when he got it wrong, and I'm not even going to name the other uh, economist who um, desperately tried to cover up his uh, mistakes. But Louis scored himself a 3 out of 10 for 2018 predictions. He said that he underestimated the impact of the squeeze on investor interest-only lending, and then he scored himself a six out of 10 for 2019. And I think he did yeah. in an episode that he didn't necessarily think Labor were going to win. Oh, sorry, he didn't think Liberal were going to win the election and that's how he got it wrong. But I love the fact that he gave himself a score. So he's accepting that he's not always going to get it right.
1: Yeah, and I think if you look at 2020, um, you know, probably the growth isn't going to be as strong as he thought. He expected quite, you know, maybe double-digit growth in Sydney and Melbourne and might be right, like, you might find the low supply, and um, but it's not going to potentially be as strong as if the corona didn't happen, I imagine. Um, so, you know, that's another thing, you know. He's So if you look at his last three years, haven't been great, right, and he's another one of the big forecasters out there that we, we listen to, um, to to kind of know where the market's going.
0: Well, they can't anticipate things like this. Who possibly could? Um, but also some of these predictions – are made by people who I think potentially have conflicts of interest, you know, Mm -hmm. like some property analysts who have businesses encouraging investors into regional areas. I mean, what other biases do you think could drive some of these predictions?
1: I think that's a good point. Um, Through my research, there was a lot of... uh, buyers agents, I would call them, or property spookers potentially as well. They, you know, they're in that domain a little bit as well. Um, people building property research to sell something, um, and that research generally said is go nowhere near Sydney, Melbourne. Um, there's no growth there. You know, it's dangerous. You know, invest in regional, and um, you know those those predictions are obviously wrong. And so, you know, I did see there's a lot of um, there's some Real names that are always popping up that are spruking the the rural investing. The reason these sprukers—and I do call them sprukers—do uh, recommend these strategies is because it's easy to buy um, in these areas because it's actually not that com- it's not that much competition and there's not that shortage of supply. So they say, "Well, I'll you know help you buy in southeast Queensland, um, buy something at three four hundred thousand. You know, there's no growth in Sydney." Um, why don't you buy something affordable, it's positive cash flow or it's high yield or whatever. For them as a buyer's agent, you know, they charge you 10, 15 grand or even maybe sometimes less. Um, but then they say don't buy one, buy three. <laughs> and um, so, you know, you've got to be careful. A lot of these forecasters, they're using their research and they're, um, the reason why they're producing this research is to sell you something basically.
0: Yeah, I actually, I watched a video just yesterday from one of these um, usual suspects. Mm. and It was all about, you know, trying to use data and facts to back up that, um, you know, don't worry, you can continue investing in property because the fundamentals are there and the Australian property market once again, you know, which doesn't exist as we all know. Yeah. You know, and it's just, it's it, it flies in the face of the fact that, there are areas that have lost money. There are areas that have spiked um, in invested demand um, that ultimately long-term won't perform particularly well. There are areas that have been artificially spiked because of some of this spruker activity, you know. So it, it is, and it flies in the face of the fact that you can lose money in property and plenty of people do. And um, and oh, I
1: know uh um, I can't remember exactly when we had a, one of our episodes, but you know, I challenged one of our guests around. Do you think that people with a bit of a voice can, you know, create a mini boom through hype and content? And I do believe in small markets uh, where they put a bit of a noise around it and they get a bit of media attention, um, and they encourage, encourage their investors to kind of go there, um, and they do get a little bit of returning growth in the first, you know, year or so while they've got this. Um, you know, investors going there and there's only so many properties that are selling. So they get a bit of growth. Uh, and then the, the growth just never happens after that. Um, and so a lot of these, uh, you know, usual suspects I've seen pretty much most of them. I've seen the people with their portfolios come to me and they've got four or five properties. Um, you know, I've got a client a couple of weeks ago before the baby that, um, yeah, had five properties through one of these guys and, um, you know, they're all, you know, average at best. Um, and know, one of them is potentially done all right, but I do think that's, you know, there's reasons behind that one as well.
0: So we will talk a bit more about that when I get into the the decade of research or the research I've done mm. over the decade because that's, uh, and once again we're not going to name names, but the, you can certainly start seeing some, some um, I guess, maybe some trends. Um, but what who, who got it right? Did anyone actually in your research, Chris, get... right did they pick 2019 property market so and what we're saying 2019 we're really saying that at the end of the first quarter of 2020 we can really look back and really what happened in 2019 all the data's in and then we can really say well okay who got it right
1: who got it wrong probably Stuart Weems um is one person and there's probably other people who have written about it and um just probably, oh, it's a great time to buy, um, no real logic behind what they're saying, just just enter the market. Um, I don't think that's calling the bottom. I think people who are a bit more pragmatic and sit in the middle and, um, you know, don't act out of self-interest um, and try to be a bit more of an independent source or balanced in their view, um, which I think Stuart is. Uh, I, I'd argue he called the bottom in December 2018, I think it was. Yeah, um, he wrote an article Last year we did... He got, so, held, he got held down a lot,
0: didn't
1: he? <laughs> just, he I just wrote a message comment to his post actually. He said, mate, big call, what's happening yeah. next year? Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of negativity and that's that's a pretty good time when the bottom is when everyone thinks things are going to keep falling. Mm. Um, and so I, I think right now with the stock market, for example, a lot of people are like, oh, maybe I should enter the market. It's fallen. I don't think peak pessimism has hit yet. Um and when that hits, that's when the stock market will be at its all-time lows. Um, I remember in March 2009 when the market was at its absolute um, floor in the UK, and that's when all the banks were getting taken over, um, You know, huge job losses, the whole UK economy was going to go bankrupt. Um, that's the optimal time to actually buy into the stock market. And I don't think we're there yet with this coronavirus. So. I think um, Stuart was right. That's when the peak pessimism was, was late last year, 2018. Um, and so he got it right. I do think Chris Joy's good um, in terms of he actually thought Labor were going to win the election, so he made it, uh, you know, if Labor win, then you are going to keep seeing further declines of the market.
0: Didn't everybody uh, think that? We-
1: yeah. But he changed his tune pretty quick. So before the election, um he changed his view. He said, "Well, actually, I think the market's turning." So he was looking at the data. And Chris is—I do respect him a lot with the predictions because he makes his money out of managing cash, um, not equity-based investment. Like, uh, and he's lot, a lot—a lot of what he does is watch the banks and how they um, lend money and, you know, um, borrow money, etc. And he's, he's very watching the housing market because a lot of that's priced into the bank's risk a lot. Um, So he's always on it. And so in April he said, look, I think the market's turning. And then in May he said, I reckon there's going to be big price rises. So he predicted the rebound, um, which I think was pretty cool because a lot of people just thought, oh, yeah, market's going to recover. But not many people like him said actually it's going to recover massively and fast. Mm. Uh, And so I think he was another standout performer.
0: Right. and any. Big notable mentions in terms of um, the gong. Anyone that for you, I mean, you've mentioned a couple already, That they're they're the usual suspects. So is there anyone that stands out that went, oh, it's just like completely off beam?
1: Oh, on the negative side? Yeah. I mean, you've got all those big doomsdays which make money out of negative news. They're normal. Um, We expect them every time. I would say, I mean, I'd probably give it to Shane Oliver just because he's the biggest name, Mm. right? And so. I think, uh, you know, Narita Connorsby, I, she, I had to hand out to her as well because she's got such good data, um, uh, REA data, domain search data. I mean, we've we've interviewed them both. Mm. Um, I just wish I could get access to that, uh, watching human behaviour, especially right now with the – really like, watching what people are doing. Like it's just so good. I think her data, I, I, I think it's always good to listen to what she says. Um, but um, – yeah, I th- I'd say that, you know, I'd give it to Shane Oliver. Um, he has agreed to come on the podcast. So hopefully if he hears this, he still agrees to come on. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I'd say just because, you know, he he's probably the biggest voice out there and he was out there writing, you know, there's going to be 25% falls and, um, you know, he was really pushing that bandwagon. He wasn't as big as the big falls like the Martin North and the John Hemptons, et cetera, but, you know, he he was you know pretty big. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, okay. So when I've looked back ten years, I found a few articles and checked what really happened against the recommendations. So I mean, as you know, going back, trying to go back in history and find these these articles that we can use, it's, it's always lovely, isn't it? Go right, ten years ago, somebody said you should buy here. Okay, well, what if you had bought there? What what would your investment portfolio be looking like today? Now, the first uh, article I looked at uh, was a piece published by Nine News, based on research commissioned by St George Bank. And it tabled twenty four hotspots across the nation. So, um, you know, and and when banks commissioned this sort of research, I, I'm gathering it's because they were on position themselves as a you know, a bit of a player in the home loan space. And ten years ago, you know, I think St George Bank when did they be when did they get bought out by Westpac? Wouldn't have been much before this, would it? So um in
1: the GFC, wasn't it? So yeah, I
0: think it was. So I mean, look, so I think they were sort of pitching, oh, angling themselves to be to become much more of a player in the home loan space at the time. So, you know, it's a PR thing to commission research, and then you get lots of PR off the back of it. But the first question to tackle is what is a hotspot? Um, and so I went and got a um, you know, realestateview.com.au, I got a definition from there. It said a hotspot can best be described as an area that has not attracted the same level of attention as traditional blue chip locations. They are often identified as areas that are underperforming, usually within close proximity to more popular suburbs.
1: Yeah, um, I would argue that people misuse that hot spot because I um, think they like penny stocks in shares. You know, we've all kind of heard of that, you know, like these hot tip, you know, my mate down the pub or my friend of my parents said I should buy into this stock. They, they kind of use that same philosophy and they think that, You know, there's an area or there's a street that you need to buy um, and just doesn't work like that with property. I think the hotspot there is um, similar to something called a bridesmaid um, suburb, which, you know, is you've got a good suburb that's growing really strongly. The suburb next to that that's potentially not taking on as much demand because everyone wants to live in, say, Glee, but they don't want to live in Annandale, right? Um, Or, you know, the suburbs that are next to each other that are similar in terms of their livability, but there's just not as much demand there. I think that's a genuine sort of hotspot, a bridesmaid suburb. But you know, when you're buying outskirts and there's no real um, demand around it that's next to it, I don't think it's a hotspot. I think it's just someone spruiking something.
0: Yeah, and I have to say, we'll get into this in a minute, And some of these suburb selections seem so random. It's it's like just in the middle of nowhere and it's like, what? Why that? Really? What, it, what has, is this little tiny pimple of a suburb in the middle of nowhere, you know? And other times I think it's the ripple effect and it's almost like the permanent. Well, it's gentrification meets the ripple effect, the other top hotspot, isn't it? I mean, it's like, you know, if Annandale's a good example actually. Annandale is, is a blue chip suburb in the inner west um, what happens to Leichhardt next to it is that when and when the rest of the market goes up, Leichhardt gets looked at. It's the bridesmaid suburb. But you know what? It, it doesn't have some of the larger homes and, and the general look and feel of it that Anadale does. So in the end, it's always going to be a bridesmaid suburb. And so there will be a demand that spikes often because people can't afford Anadale. The minute the market slows down again, they all go back to Anadale, they go, bugger, I, can't, I don't want to buy an Likert, I'll buy an Anadale. So that, mm. that's an example of one of those suburbs that that never quite um, kicks off. But then you've got Marrickville, for instance, and you know Marrickville for many years was seen as a down and out and now you get actually we get you know millennials and you know coming first home buyers coming to us saying, Oh, i want to live in marrickville and and that's that seems to have been a permanent change based on yeah. what's been happening in marrickville and so there's there's a difference there leichardt's yet to have that leichardt for some mm. reason never seems to kick off permanently um but then you've got these Hotspot in terms of mining towns and regional towns and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and there's a massive danger around that, I have to say, because that's really about people speculating um, and not understanding how risky some of those uh, speculations are.
1: So, the elephant in the room is 100% for you.
0: The reason that Chris and I do this podcast is because we passionately believe that property buyers can do it better. We really want to help all of you understand all the risks, but also the ways in which you can avoid your elephant making the decisions.
1: Well, what we would love for you to do is just to share this episode and share other episodes with people around you that are going through the property process.
0: Give us a review on iTunes. A five star, please, would be very appreciated. Because Cause this is about making sure that we all benefit from the wonderful information that our guests have been sharing with us.
1: You know, I've always seen my job as a financial advisor is, um, you know, I'm not risking my money. I'm risking my clients money. Right. And I'm, um, if I make give them advice, that's not right and that isn't in their best interest and doesn't give them the best outcome. Um, that's my responsibility and it's not my money. So a lot of these people doing hotspots, they're not really connecting with the impacts that what they're saying is actually turning to human behavior and is actually potentially destroying people's lives financially. Yeah. Um, and it's not so much of if they get that tip wrong. Like there's a the whole mining town scenario, but most of these suburbs don't go through big falls. They just don't grow. Um, and what ends up happening is they just go sideways because there's always the The incomes in the area aren't potentially rising that much. There's always supply. The turnover of the properties is similar to the demand Um, and people can borrow because their incomes aren't going up. The prices just go sideways. And while they could have their money in a better market, it actually is going up. Um, And when they finally switch on to these markets that aren't rising, um, you know, 5, 10, 15 years later, um, then they minus off their buy costs, their sell costs, their maintenance, the repairs, et cetera, et cetera. They've made nothing out of it. Um, and it's, they've missed, the, the, I guess, the opportunity of investing in suburbs that are growing. And so I, I just don't really have much um, patience for these kind of hotspotting tips because um, a lot of them are just, you know, basically research that they're selling so they can sell a product.
0: So I think the real issue with hot hotspotting is you've got to think about who is most susceptible to falling um, for these these predictions. And typically they are people who probably have the most to lose and we're talking about people that are trying to replace their income, so there might be low-income owners who are trying to get to a point where they can make up for the fact that they're not in a high paying job. Yeah, true. And as we've discussed many, many times, unfortunately, and whether you like it or you don't like it, only about 5 to 10% of property is really worth buying for investment and therefore it is an elitist sport, if you want to call it that. I mean, it's not everyone can actually afford to invest in quality property which is low risk and so therefore the people that are trying to either make up for lost time because they're getting close, their runway is getting really short, they're getting close to retirement, they haven't built up enough enough equity in other areas and they're trying to get into the market to make some quick gains, um, they can't afford to lose what they already have and people who are trying to replace or make up for the fact that I don't have huge earnings, they can't really afford to to take great losses because they don't have the ability or the equity elsewhere to be able to um, to buffer themselves if if they do have a loss. So they and what they're not realizing is how much risk they're taking. So you know, for this this article that I reviewed, the. Uh, the based on the St George Bank research with 24 suburbs across the country. Now, if you want to have a look at each of the 24 suburbs and how they performed, I've included a table in the full or forecaster 2020 report, which you can download on the website, the, in the as of April Fool's Day. Um, but the thing is, though, you get this you get this story. And it's got to be a national story, of course. So therefore, you've got to have hotspots in every state, right? Um, And that includes Perth. And I have to say that Perth and hotspot aren't two words that have been used in the same sentence, really, from the mining boom. It also looked a bit random at times, um, perhaps a little bit too data-driven, really, without digging into understanding, is there an anomaly and why? And does a particular suburb belong in the list? You know, when you look at a map at some of the isolated suburbs that have been included, you just think, "Well, why is that there?" There's no real explanation. Um, and if anyone actually followed the advice on this, God only knows uh, really where they'd be now. And there's also recommendations for suburbs with extremely low sales volumes. You know, I'm talking maybe 20 properties sold in an entire year. I mean, you can't be predicting a hot spot when you've got that type of data it's very very non not statistic very very not does that make a sense but it's not statistically significant that amount of um, sales with which to make any claims or predictions based on so this is another example of these sort of stories that get out there and if people do um, act on this stuff because they believe it and they trust it then um you know they could have made some big losses
1: i mean one of these reports they um if you say the obvious boring locations where most people can't afford, then, um, you know, you sound like, well, you only reckon you can invest in these suburbs. And we sometimes get a bit of backlash that we, you know, do think that, you know, mm. most property is not worth buying. Um, and so a lot of people think, well, sure, it's okay. It's okay. Well, you know, we've got a pretty black and white view on a lot of stuff. So, um, you know, I remember I, last year I was asked to put some thoughts into one of these like forecasts, um, sort of property things. And like you, I don't really generally do them, but I thought, you know what, I'm actually going to do it in this case and it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, but, yeah, a lot of people are just kind of throwing names of suburbs out there that, without any real um, understanding of demand and supply really.
0: Yeah. So the next article I looked at um, was in the Brisbane Times uh, in which I quote, PRD nationwide research analyst Aaron McMascree has tipped Logan south of Brisbane as one area ripe for growth in the immediate future. So it's, you know, it's 10 years ago, right? And um, so I've called up a couple of Brisbane buyers agents and so what's the story with Logan? Well, it's a council area for a start. So it's a whole area. I mean, as we know in the southeast uh, um, southeast Queensland or south of Brisbane, there's been a lot, a lot of development and you have to ask, why are agents commenting on growth spots? And, you know, there's also a confusion between growth in terms of development versus prices and value. And then new builds actually skew prices and create a false impression of capital growth. So people then are looking at um, at data to say, well, you know, the, the median price in these suburbs has gone up from X to Y. Um, it can be skewed because of new stock sells for a higher price than old stock. Yeah. Uh, it also can be skewed because if there's been properties that have been sold for subdivision, uh, so the zoning has changed, they can also uh, reflect huge capital growth um, or gains, huge gains in value. Yeah, and and that can skew the data as well. So when people, I mean, when agents quote, I mean, agents, I don't believe most uh, have the um, the research houses that really qualify them to make predictions personally.
1: all um, agents. Uh, very suburb specific, yeah. um, and I mean, if you were going to be a, a leader in as a real estate agent, you don't want to be an expert across all eight markets. You want to be an expert in one market, um, and so and you, you want, want to, to be talk going-
0: market up, of course,
1: <laughs> okay.
0: and you're going to talk that market that you're an expert in up.
1: Always, exactly. So uh, in saying that, though, in the downturn, we did have those doomsday agents out there that um you know force people to sell which they want to create a listing so uh, on one side yeah. of the coin they're saying you know this crash is going to be 25 30 percent you must get out sell now or you'll lose a lot of money and then they do the open home on the saturday and they would be like oh great time to buy you know it's a cracking property um yeah. it's a pretty uh you know awful place to be if you have to kind of lie like that um but you're right like the agents i think you know a lot of the commentators in the market but a lot of them have to be area specific and um you know they're not going to what what's happening in that area is never going to be what's happening in the whole market and so i think it's not a great place to to go for tips
0: so so let's look at logan for a bit because it's been talked about a lot yet hasn't actually done much for the flood of investors who bought there and i found a property forum thread dated january 2016 where an investor who bought in the logan suburb of woodbridge in 2007 was seeking advice from other other investors as to whether they should bail and take a loss. Now, I subsequently found a domain article dated the following month that claimed Sydney investors were buying blind and pushing up prices. Yeah. And the data, in retrospect, seems to stack up here because he, he basically, if that person that was, I think it was a woman actually, the person that was asking whether they should bail or not, if they'd waited, um, they would have actually made a little bit of a gain. Um and as it turns out, all that gain was from Sydney investors going up there because they were priced out of the Sydney market, seeking affordable investments and also being encouraged up there by a lot of these spruikers. Um, you know, it's, it's quite shocking to think then who's pushing up prices? Well, the locals, there's no local owner-occupier supply and demand if it could have been sitting there stagnant for all these years. And then there's a little bit of an influx purely because affordability in Sydney pushed investors to start looking at these sort of areas.
1: Yeah, I mean it's one of the first things I do when I've chat to a client is, you know, we'll talk about their current properties and what they've done or if they haven't got any, and it's a different story obviously. But, you know, when they have got properties, ask for the address and I'll type it quickly into Google and um, i look at Google Maps and I'll look at the satellite. Um, it's the first thing I'll always do Um And really what you want to see is no land left. Logan, there's so much land left. There's farms Mm. and farms and farms. So if I can see lots of land left, to me that's just warning, warning, more supply. The other thing is if it is in the inner ring, I want to see no new apartments getting built around it. And you can very quickly see that on satellites by where there's white um, because white's generally commercial buildings, they're tops. Um, And so you can very easily look at a map on satellite and see, well, where's all these commercial buildings that might change to residential apartments? And there's certain pockets all over like Sydney, Melbourne, where it's very obvious that new apartments are going to get built in the future. And so I think, um, you know, when you look at Logan, it's just fundamentally it's just not there for supply. And a lot of spruikers were going up there, as an example, um, pushing this dual income, you know, double income sort of duplexes in the outer suburbs, which is the worst investment to buy out there because it's not what... The locals really want to live in. It's the affordability market you're targeting there, not the high, the growing sort of owner-occupier market.
0: Well, it's that that the difference between investor grade and investor stock. So that's yeah. where there, that's investor stock, and like you say, if it only appeals to investors from outside the area who don't know any better, then it's not a good investment. The, the Brisbane um, Times article also listed a number of other suburbs which actually did okay. So in retrospect, I've gone back and, and once again, if you download the report, go to the, elephant in the room.com.au, you can have a look at these and look at the growth that these did experience. But what's sort of interesting is that there was still an enormous amount of risk with this because some of this, once again, some of these properties, so some of these suburbs, they transact um, as little as 20 properties a year. So even if I'm looking at the median, you know, it could look like it's gone up, but that could be the lower. End of the market's not doing very well, and the upper end is doing better. I mean, you've got to dig beneath the the, the raw data to understand each individual area, um, and so I would still look at that as yes, okay, according to the median, people made money, but there's just so much volatility when you're when you're. Well, some of the vol- volumes have been volatile as well, but but you know, it's just so much risk when you're dealing with such small numbers of transactions.
1: Yeah, I think the best way to really understand what a market's doing. Is actually looking at this same property um, and looking at over time periods. Oh. So literally, um, when, and you can get this data from RP Data or even Domain, a lot of the time has it now. Um, you know, the whole, it sold in, you know, June 2006 for 800, it sold in 2014 for, you know, 950, and then in 2017, you know what I mean? And not not every property's got that, but if that property has got that, um or it's similar to the property that you're buying um you can start to see that you know there is actual change in the market and i think that's the best way to to look at you know what's actually growing what's not growing is on a, on a case by case property by property yeah um and then you really get to understand what's selling what's not selling but then you also have to understand that um you know you don't actually know what caused that price and you have to be a little bit um, careful, because sometimes they get a really good sale price because they run a really good campaign and they find a desperate buyer who overpays, or sometimes the opposite you know they, they do sell very quickly because they want to move on to something else for example so
0: and that, that 's your weakness when you 're looking at areas with very low sales sales volume yeah. that 's more susceptible to those outliers skewing the data as opposed to if you 've got hundred sales you know one sale that that fits into that category is only 1% as opposed to one sale if you've got 20 is
1: 5%. Yeah. So
0: um you know that's a, that's a much more significant number it's interesting too i mean as i said these tables will be in the in the full forecaster report the logan suburbs um over 10 years you know roughly you might have had 5% growth um which when you compare what you could have done if your money was in Sydney over those same 10 years. So, you know, the affordable money goes to affordable areas, but, you know, the litmus test is, well, at the end of 10 years, what's your investment done for you? Um, and if you're looking at 5% growth, then well, that's pretty horrible. And that's capital growth. That's forget yield. Um, so
1: Yeah, I mean, you're right, though. that You need to be thinking long-term. And the two things you need for long-term is you need scarcity. You need actually can't build any more because that's, that's part of the equation and, ideally things that suit that sort of double income, high income family. The reason why is that they've got the A, the biggest emotional pool and B, they've got the biggest borrowing capacity and generally assets because they're combined. Um, And so I'd really, if you could target one market for me, I think that's the the market or potentially the downsizer now that's made a lot of money. Um, And, you know, and and you generally need to buy in areas where there's income growth, you know, in that area there's uh, incomes are rising and, People who are earning higher incomes are wanting to move to that area. Uh, otherwise, people can't borrow more money and, and get bigger mortgages, I guess, to push the price up.
0: Yeah. And back on that with the income growth and the higher incomes, you know, back to that that thread on the property forum where the, the person in January 2016 was wor- worried about their property that they bought in uh, Woodbridge, they were basically, um, there was quite a few comments in there around the, the type of tenant. Um, and how difficult they were to manage, um, and how much damage had been, you know, to properties. So it's like, there's a, you know, there's other things to consider, um, as well. Um, I also found just sort of the end of my 10 year research, I found an article on a property website where Terry Ryder, who's famous as hotspotter, uh, listed his 10 property hotspots for WA. Um, now all I can say is, Oh dear, because mm. All of them, Uh, oh, no, there's one that recorded an increase over the 10 years, one, okay, 10 areas, one recorded median growth in that time, and do you want to hazard a guess as to what that growth was?
1: Well, I'm looking at research. I reckon if that was a growth, was it Cottesloe or was it? No, no, no. Uh, the mining
0: towns? Uh, they actually oh. did not. Not one of them. Not one of them was Cottesloe, um, or or, or a, a Perth suburb. In fact, I did look at Cottesloe. Just just interestingly enough, I've already done this. The median um price of Cottesloe over that over that decade, 2009 2019, rose by 3.49 percent. Um, yeah. and then. Your sales volumes consistent around about one hundred uh, sales per annum. Subiaco, another suburb, that's a, it's a you know yeah. you know it's a pretty good suburb of Perth, and that yeah. went not ten point oh nine percent to say ten yeah. percent, uh, roughly averaging around eighty sales per annum. So yeah. they're sort of Perth suburbs, Perth you know very well known and what you call blue chip suburbs. We yeah. recorded a little bit of growth, um, very modest uh, over that decade, but no, the Terry Ryder report. Had ten, um, you know, a lot of them. Oh, we had Albany, Broome, Bunbury, Geraldton, Joondalup, Dalup, Meriden, Port Hedland, Rockingham, and Waruna. Mm. Waruna, interestingly enough, was already on the slide by two thousand nine when this report came out. So it was already on the slide over the ten years. It, it lost twenty, nearly twenty seven percent. Now the one that went up was June Dalup, if that's how you pronounce it. Um, oh yeah. It went up half a percent.
1: Yeah, I mean, I know that area. That's done well because it's uh, on the coast. Hey,
0: done well, half a percent in ten years, it went up.
1: Well, compared <laughs> to, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's yeah, fair point. I mean, the that have done better than the the Perth averages. I mean, there's a lot of land out in Perth, and mm. there hasn't been much um, growth in terms of population and employment and things like that. So there's no scarcity. There's no urgency in the market. Um, but, you know, in areas that where there are a bit of shortage, then you are going to potentially see a little bit of growth. But, you know, most people don't go pay too much over what the current price is because they're just patient. They'll just say, well, I'll just keep waiting. Uh-huh. You know, like there's no urgency that forces the market to start rising and then people see the market rise and then they think, well, actually, I'm going to miss out and then they start, you know, et cetera, and the cycle just kind of kicks off. I mean, there's been plenty of learnings, I guess, out of this year in the forecasts. I think uh-huh. for me... Um, it's just the bouncing ball. Like I think people, and I can see it happening already where, um, you know, people are always waiting to buy at the bottom. They want to wait for that bell to ring and people to go, right, now is the right time to buy. Um, and if you miss it, um, the problem is, which is what Roger Montgomery spoke about in Episode 73, um, he talks about how at the bottom of a market, liquidity drives up, uh, drives up and you can't really buy. Mm. So even though you want to buy, prices are good, there's nothing to buy. And so um, and so, waiting for that moment is you kind of shoot yourself in the foot because you find that there's no good properties on the market and that's exactly what happened in, you know, 2019. Um, so that, but what's, I guess, the big learning is how fast the bounce back has been um, and then unexpected things will always happen, like Labor winning the election, um, losing the election. <laughs> uh, you know, they, these sort of things just happen every year. And corona this year. Um, Labor that year, you know, Euro debt crisis, the GFC. um, There's so many things um, that are happening every year that just we don't expect and um, they're just going to always happen. And so that's the problem with forecasting is is that no one knows. You can't bake in the unforeseen, I guess. Mm.
0: Yes, and there's always the doomsayers that, you know, which is it's, well, there's always the hotspotters and there's always the doomsayers. And I think you've got to look at any either end of the spectrum is always a dangerous place to be. Yeah. Um, you know, the someone's always trying to sell you something if they're if they're a bull or a bear, I I think. Um we haven't even used those terms really, have we, It's so far on this episode, um bull and bear. But uh, and we even got um what do we get accused of being
1: Ooh. Well, you more so than me, I think. You were called a plummet bull.
0: no, I'm not. Oh, yeah. I don't believe. I am. Um Yeah, I
1: think you're you in terms of you understand you know your market you know what quality properties are and you understand you know long term um, shortages of supply and increasing demand and what a quality asset is and that's all you buy so mm. you know in terms of what but then you you know that's where you, a lot of people might think you're permeable. Well, you're only permeable on those properties um yeah. and uh, that's that's a bit different to you know thinking that every, all properties are going to go up just by property which we don't need to say what episode kind of said that um, (laughs) completely completely wrong i do think you do need to listen to the doomsdayers um you know it's one of the reasons i follow martin north it's one of the reasons i will read um articles that are talking things down i'll read a lot of the ubs research um not that they're always a doomsday but um because i think you learn things along the way otherwise you get stuck in this confirmation bias loop where you basically just you know, reading things that confirm exactly what you think, and you just think, you know, you, know, rose-colored glasses through to through the through to the end. But things do happen, and you sometimes do need to change strategy, or take advantage of an opportunity, or potentially sell and, um, you know, put your money elsewhere because um, things are always changing. So you do need to keep your mind open to alternatives.
0: Yes. So I think that we've learned that speculation is risky. We know that anyway. Um, If you are going to speculate, the timing must be right. And that's inherent. The risk is inherent in that because even the experts can't get the timing right. Yeah, You've got to dig into the numbers and ask questions, you know, like there's low sales volumes or what or who is actually driving prices. Hotspot lists are generally there for clickbait. So just take them with a grain of salt. In fact, I'd say use them as toilet paper. If we've got a shortage of toilet paper, that's a perfect use for a hot spotting list. Um, Because once a location makes that list, there's very little time left to make a game. Um, So, you know, I think once again, I I agree with you. I think that we can learn from the bears. But if you say that, then we've got a list of the bulls as well. So, I mean, I I do like to be a moderate. I do like to, to. try to be considered and, and and understand that there are risks. And so by looking to de-risk, uh, that's really important.
1: Now, if- I think it's important to know that if you are a property bear, and there will be some listening to this episode right now that are uh, looking at the numbers and looking at uh, multiples of income on property and say that it's all overvalued and you can't possibly buy because it's 12 times income in Sydney, right? Um, and they've been thinking like that for years and years and years. Um, it's important to just... Recognize that that that's what you are, um, and really try to, I guess, um, understand that and educate you on the other side of the, the coin, which is probably what you're doing listening to this. Because oh. um, I've had a lot of clients who have been in that camp, especially if they've worked in money markets and things like that, um, and shares. Um, they try to use those same rules into the property market, and completely, you know, misunderstand the the power of owner occupy demand. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it's and you know a lot of those. Uh, people, unfortunately, they're the ones who are missing the biggest opportunity, which is opportunity cost in terms of time and, and just missing the market. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so it's just important to know where you are. And if you're on the other side, if you're a property bull and you're just, you know, thinking everything's going to go up, you're going to shoot yourself in the foot because you're going to take on way too much risk. You're going to buy the poor property because you're not thinking through that, you know, how things could go wrong.
0: And too many of them. That's the other thing that, that a lot of property, property bulls do. They, they buy volume and that's, you know, that's... Not a great strategy. I do am fully in favour of, you know, a handful and it might be one or two or three really, really top solid um, assets if you're going to buy a property. You don't need – quantity does not outstrip quality.
1: Yeah, and I think think through your own – think through your lifestyle in terms of your owner-occupier property first before you go out and invest. And, um, I mean, it's – you know, this client has come recently. He's got five properties through – I call a Spruka um, and, you know, they're renting and they're renting in Sydney and they're not far from you, Veronica, actually, um, in you know, where your office is. Oh. Uh, and, you know, his wife really just wants to get into a home now. The kids are getting a bit older. They just want to have a house so they can, you know, get the community, etc. and renting, you know, they've had to move a couple of times. Um, so they went down the investor route with the idea of selling all that to buy the house. Um, there's been no growth in the investments. The houses they want have gone up more. Oh. Um, now they want to buy. And it's kind of been a bit of a waste of time and they actually potentially can't buy um, without selling properties.
0: Well, so you've got to pay tax on that. You know, you sell it. It's not like your own home where you sell that and you can take everything that you got from it, you know, after your costs and, and sink that into another property. Um, well, let's see,
1: they've lost everything in these situations because they're putting in a 10% deposit, let's say, plus costs hmm. uh, and the property value is now worth 90%, let's call it, of what they purchased oh. at. Oh. um after selling mm. so you know, and this is generally the case you know you uh, you know you've paid a little bit overs you've potentially have to sell a little bit unders um to get rid of it because it's not a hot property and takes a long time um because you want a fast sale you have to sell it you know at a long price um and yeah you just you what equity you have got in it evaporates in terms of fees um so yeah
0: oh, that's a bit of a downer to um, end the um end the episode on But so um <laughs> If you want to listen to some other past episodes over the past year about data and predictions, um, we recommend checking out Kent Lada. Sorry, Kent Lardner in episode 71, Roger Montgomery, as you mentioned before, 73, Warren Hogan as well, uh episode 75. We talked about recession, the potential recession, uh, with Warren Hogan and the and definition of recession as well, which is actually quite um, interesting to consider. Cameron Kusha episode 77 eliza rowan 81 alan Kohler, episode 88 andrew wilson episode 96 and louis christopher in episode 102 and don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode plus download the full forecaster report from tomorrow april fool's day 2020 on the elephant in the thank you so much for joining us today thank you us for our next episode is another special coronavirus episode. We're talking to Eliza Rowan, the Head of Residential Research in Australia for CoreLogic. And what we're talking about is the fundamentals of the property market. And we're going back in time here to look at what's really underpinning the property market and the likely response to the coronavirus from a numbers and data and history point of view. But we're also talking about some very, very fresh data because, of course, the situation's changing day by day. Uh, some very fresh, data they've got from logic, and uh, the application of that, I guess, to our understanding of what could be happening to the property market. So I encourage you, as always, to join us.
1: Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter.
0: Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you.
1: Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you.
0: Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.